What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you for listening to Armchair Producers. This is just a reminder that you can go over to twitch.tv slash thefriedbrain every Wednesday evening at around 8 o'clock, and you can listen to us live, and you can actually also donate to us if you'd like. It does help support the channel, keep things running. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to this week's episode of Armchair Producers. I am one of your hosts, George Terran also known as the Ice Cube of Kinglake. I am joined, as always, with the talent, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Travis Croft. How are you, sir? I am surviving uh, the uh, latest bout our city uh, is having with the... Of Groundhog Day 3.0. The Unvogue virus <laughs> of unspecified origins, um, mm-hmm. which I had to be tested for this week, so I will apologise to our audience for being... A bit sniffly, there might be some coughing, there might be some sneezing, there might be some blowing of the noses, but I assure you, um, A, you can't get the coronavirus. We use plenty of antivirus software on this exactly. podcast. Yeah, it so doesn't come down the wire uh, no. via the, the pipes mm-hmm. that are the internet, um, and I have been given the test for the unspecified virus. Mm-hmm. I, I was given the all clear by our top-notch people, which if we realise we're in our fourth wave, you can sort of figure out how top-notch they really are. You should have just said, given the all-clear by top men. Top men, yes. (laughs) I forgot. I missed that, though. Do you hear they're doing a fourth one of those films? Yeah, and he's going to be like 80 when it comes out. That is just ridiculous. I don't know. I mean, it's being... Yeah being directed by James Mangold, who has generally made solid, if not great, movies. Um, But... Really, just let it be a nice trilogy. That's all. But that's all. the one thing that Disney doesn't know how to do is to let shit be. <laughs> yeah, that is Especially, fucking true. Um, but it's, it's, I'm, I am fine. Though. I apologize for my voice and, and for any uh, side effects. I will try to remember to mute where possible. Mm-hmm. Um, better, man. Or else um, we will be, of course, a less pleasant listening experience. Um, speaking of pleasant experiences, we have an exciting surprise coming up for you in a few weeks. Can't mm-hmm. say too much about what it is, but uh, do make sure you tune in next week for some more information. Absolutely, about, yeah. about the exciting, maybe you know, addition to the, mm-hmm. the show. Yeah, who knows? So who just, knows? There's, there's, there's a lot of interesting thoughts. Could be, could be James Mangold for all you know. Could be. Um, it could be. Uh, Juan. Wow, Juan gets in there straight Juan away. Juan goes whack straight away. With <laughs> Speaking whack. of our chain movie of the week, which I chose um, following on from The Spanish Prisoner last week, we went to Hannibal. Um, gonna we've got a bit of a stacked show. I'm not going to be talking too much about my stuff, but um, I did touch base on Clarice, the Sort of like semi sequel to Science of the Lambs, the TV show, just to catch up on that. I watched the 1980 cult classic Battle Beyond the Stars, as well as going back to another classic movie, Dark City. And Travis w- went through and we I'm classics we did, myself, in fact. Yeah, yeah. Breakfast Club, The Hidden, and don't know if it really qualifies as a classic, but it's um, it's a film, Mister and Missus Smith. <laughs> it's very much a film. You got that right. Yes. I, I I I did my research on that one, and I made sure. <laughs> I'm fairly sure there was film involved in cameras and potentially a craft services truck. Um, yes, I reckon so. I reckon so, and a lot of egos, a lot of egos. Yeah. Oh, you called it. Took you on. Oh, Dark City is the correct response. Yes, well done, well done. You win a prize, and that is our respect. Now, 
Shall we get on with Let's the show? On. We have a, a chocolate yeah. show. We're trying yeah. to get through it as quick as we can. So you chose Hannibal. Uh, I did. 2001 Ridley Scott directed revisiting of the legendary Hannibal Lecter by Anthony Hopkins. Um, this is, of course, the follow the link here was David Mamet, who yes. wrote the screenplay for this film and wrote and directed mm -hmm. The Spanish Prisoner last week. Um, this film was made, what, almost uh, 10 years after the original? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I got this at a trivia night once. They're like, who was the actor who played Hannibal Lecter? And I'm like, oh, Brian Cox. Mm -hmm. And they're like, no, it was Hannibal Lecter. I'm like, no, 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 no. Manhunter was made in 1986. It was directed by Michael Mann. Mm -hmm. and, Brian, and they're like, right, shut up. You're being a smart ass. And I'm like, you know, if you don't have your answers right. Exactly. But anyway, from, from our perspective, the, the Hopkins version of Lecter started in 1990, I think was. I think it was 1990. Silence of the Lambs. 1991. Yeah, I think it won the uh, 91 Oscar, I think. So I think it came um, out in 1990. But it, it but, of course, yeah. we had to wait 10 years for the, the sequel. We get most of the team back. Yep. Um, we get the important part, I guess, in some ways, in the sense of being Anthony Hopkins. Mm -hmm. But we uh, we uh, we have uh, Frankie Faison as Nurse Barney coming back. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, we do not have probably the but missing link here, of course, is Jodie Foster, whose yep. role is replacing mm -hmm. this by, played by Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore. And this was at a point just before she really kind of hit it really hard. Uh, thanks for the confirmation, Juan. It was 1994, Sons of the Lambs. Um, it was really, this was just before like uh, Julianne Moore was in sort of like the hours. And then she had a slew of very big Oscar contention movies that really kind of knocked her up into this high grade um, position that she now still generally uh, inhabits. Um, it was a bit of a controversial one. And apparently one of the reasons why Jodie Foster chose not to come back was because of um, the way the book was. And I'm not going to spoil the book because I think they I think we're going to have to spoil the book here. I, I'm Because, I mean, let's face it, the book's been out for 20 years. That's fair. That's if fair. You wanted, if you wanted to read the book that badly by now, That's you would have read it. And That's now true. we're telling you. So I think I have similar thoughts here, but you can proceed with what, what happens in the book. So it, what happens in the book is there is far more of an obvious suggestion that um, Clarice Starling has perhaps embraced the teachings of Hannibal Lecter a little bit more than um, would necessarily be healthy, like she does participate in meal at the end of the movie and when you say a meal by Hannibal Lecter you know that it's going to be human um and there's definitely a bit more of that overt um kind of um romance I guess they again they kind of flirt with it a little bit and then they just skirt around it and just sort of like go oh he's actually they they do the the cardinal sin of all good movie villains and they turn him hero essentially um in this movie because he 
does a noble thing. Yeah. Like, yes, he's always been considered a noble character. I'm going to stop you here for a second because mm. we've made a very rare mistake in the sense we actually haven't told anybody what the film's about yet. That is true. That is true. Um, so we've got a couple of options of uh, synopses. So the first one from IMDb is living in exile, but Hannibal Lecter tries to reconnect with now disgraced FBI agent Clarice Starling and finds himself a target for revenge from a powerful victim. Yeah, guess that's accurate. It does sum it up, I think, in a, in a couple of sentences. I mean, the other one's yeah. quite a bit longer. Yeah. Which you'll probably get from talking about it. This, mm. this film isn't good. Um, I haven't seen it's this messy. film. I haven't seen this film in probably 20 years, since maybe since it came out. Um, and I guess they're always going to make a sequel, considering how successful the original was. It won, it won. This was the last film, I think, to sweep a bit before. Big Oscars, best Best actor, best um, director, actor, actress, director, picture. Mm, mm. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I, you do someone correct me if I'm wrong. I think it, it yeah. won three, if not four, of those awards. Um, so, um, and it was obviously a, a huge part of the cultural zeitgeist. So it changed, you know, serial killer films and that sort mm -hmm. of thing. Oh yeah. But um, I was watching his film, and, and um, I uh, remember um, sort of thinking about halfway through. This film is just meandering along, very mm -hmm. doing very very little. You called it messy, and I think that's a a fine way to start. To sort of skip to our um the bigger synopsis, the first mm. half of the film we're learning about the disgrace of Clarice Starling, which is mm. done kind of poorly because you know, she doesn't really do anything wrong. Yeah, um, it's it kind of was kind of like almost like something you'd expect to see in a in an eighties cop movie. You know, that's it, Mendoza, you're off the squad. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, it, it had that kind of feel, but through a very gritty lens. This was um, this was a point where Ridley Scott was kind of just exploring a little bit more of that gritty world kind of thing. He went on to do things like Body of Lies, which I think is possibly his worst movie, and that's saying a lot considering Prometheus. Um, but it's like really so grounded that it's boring, and like the opening. Uh, opening sequence to this movie is um, a, an attempted drug bust and it's it should be cool and it's kind of a cool setup and it sort of goes through and it's like okay this is this isn't too bad this is kind of oh well that that went to 11 very quickly um oh oh and it's over okay and now she's being chastised for it when it was obviously not her fault Okay, this is happening because reasons. Because the script needed to happen. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I was going to come in here and I was ready to stick the boots into to um to Ridley Scott here because I think Ridley is a formerly great director who gets by sure. on the seat of his pants on his reputation mm -hmm. alone. I would That's argue true. I don't think he's made a decent film probably since The Martian in twenty fifteen was pretty good. It has oh, been no, a long no. time. All the money in the world was pretty good, but he makes his effort. Every good film he makes, he makes about three or four pretty bad ones. I mean, obviously, when you've got Blade Runner and Alien in your back catalog, you know, you yeah. kind of get you get a little bit of wiggle room. Yeah, and then you know, even like after this film, Body of Lies came seven years after this. By the way, uh, um, this after this, he went straight into um, uh, just as a gladiator to this to Black Hawk Down, which is all right. Um, yeah. Max, Sick Men, Kingdom of Heaven, yeah, yeah, they're forgettable, uh, mm. all forgettable, all forgettable until Prometheus, which is not forgettable, but for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. But 
but um but don't I, worry he's got gladiator 2 on the, his dance oh, card wow. for the future i guess i hope russell crowe's in that um <laughs> but i was so i was ready to come in here and just like swing away yeah but i think really there's a story in the trivia here but they came and asked him while he was filming um gladiator if you wanted to direct hannibal and he thought it was about hannibal the uh the roman general or the uh, Carthaginian. Mm. and he's like no i don't want to make another roman film he's like no no no, no. sequel to so, uh, hannibal lecter film like, oh yeah no worries was, who would have said no to that yeah you know um but he got candid a poison chalice mm -hmm. because i think the problem with this is the script um and the problem with the script is the book <laughs> so uh, when you read about what uh, Thomas Harris wrote, and I haven't read the book, I'll be fair, but the idea that your sequel to Science of the Lambs would end um, with uh, Hannibal Lecter forming a sexual relationship with, with Clarice hmm. is a horrible idea. It's mm -hmm. a terrible idea. And, like, I don't care if you created the characters. Um, it, it's just a shitty idea. And, like, so... Apparently, they shot three different endings of his film, or three different versions for for Harris and for a couple other people involved in the production, mm. and that's just not a good sign for for a thing going forward. But, but I assume that he's kind of stuck to the story uh, to a great degree here. Um, Overall, uh, yeah. So I mean, he has not got a screenwriting credit on his film. I I would say we got we got Thomas Harris with a novel. We've got David Mamet and Stephen Zalian uh, for screenplay credit. We all know David Mamet from last week. Stephen Zalian's a reasonably well-known writer. He wrote Schindler's List, The Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. Mm -hmm. um, so he, he can he can do his thing. He wrote The Irishman. Mm. Um, so, but this is, I just think they had nothing to work with. I think they were working from an incredibly weak basis in the terms of that novel being mm -hmm. Just horrible, horrible thing to base it off. But the first half of a film with Anthony Hopkins is all around him living in Naples or something, uh, Florence. Florence, yeah, uh, Florence. Um, and you know, a bit of a cat and mouse game with a local police officer trying to catch him and, and hand him in for a reward. That should have been done in ten minutes. Well, the 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 thing is, uh, it's particularly hard to come back to this movie after the success certainly the critical success and the cult success of the um brian fuller created tv series with mad mickelson as hannibal because they redo or they reutilize a lot of this stuff like if for, for some weird contractual reason they weren't allowed to have clarice starling involved um but they were able to have Will Graham, who was the FBI agent we follow in Red Dragon, which is the prequel to Science of the Lambs, allowed to use Hannibal Lecter, allowed to use characters like Dr. Chilton and um, uh, the the Verger family and things like that, the Tooth Fairy and all of that stuff. It's um, weird, like it's like because like it's obviously the same thing in, in Clarice. They can't mention Hannibal Lecter in correct. that TV show, so yeah. somehow those rights have been. It's a weird split. It's a weird, weird split. But what they did in um, the TV show is they um, created um, a separate character in Gillian, Gillian Anderson's character. She, she's fucking phenomenal. She's been kicking goals for a long time now. Um, but uh, she ends up kind of going into this weird kind of almost Stockholm syndrome-y, um, 
relationship with Hannibal Lecter, knowing what he is, living in Europe and kind of being held hostage, but at the same time still being a bit of an enabler and things like that. And it was a really well-played, interesting dynamic. So going back to watching this, it's like, oh, oh no, this is just really, this is slow. This is plodding along for no reason when you could just get to the crux of the matter. And the thing that made Silence of the Lambs really memorable, at least for me, was the relationship and the chemistry between Clarice and Hannibal. And it takes so long to get them together. And even then, it's it feels kind of weird and stunted and just bizarre. Um, you're right. It, it doesn't mean Julianne Moore does the best she can with a role that yep. is, is a thankless task. I mean, mm-hmm. it's... It's an iconic role for Jodie Foster. Um, mm-hmm. And apparently they were pissed that Jodie Foster didn't come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jodie made the right call. I think so. Um, you're, you're right. And that was the, it was the cat and mouse, it was the interplay, those mm-hmm. scenes with um, Hannibal Lecter in, behind, in his cell behind the Perspex and, you know, um, profiling, you know, um, Clarice. And then once he escaped, again, a little bit of that cat and mouse game between Clarice mm-hmm. and, um, and, uh, and Hannibal. But... Yeah, you're right. It takes way too long to get them into the same room. Yeah. Uh, and then, as you said, it kind of – it just doesn't work. Uh, yeah. Hannibal's character doesn't work in this film. Like I said, for me, I was I was I really didn't like the opening – the section of him in, in Florence. That, why are we – halfway through the film, like, I remembered this stuff from when I watched it last mm. and watching it in here, and I'm like, why are we still in fucking Florence? I don't care about mm. this story. I don't care about the – um. The, the uh, police officer, it was his name, Patsy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't care about what why Hannibal Lecter has become an art expert or something while he lives there. Like, I, I don't care. And yeah. it need, if you, it's not a bad way to sort of start off and go, actually, he's been hiding out in Europe in plain sight. He's, mm-hmm. you know, electro- again, 20 minutes is what that section needed to yeah. maybe. But, but also at the same time, Hannibal has turned into some sort of fucking Michael Myers type character. Like, he's like... You know, he's like a slasher killer now. Like he's able to take down dudes who are professionals trying to track mm. him down. I assume he, he's a paid guy, paid thugs to basically come and bring him back home to the. Um, That's it. It's, it's trying just to. Pay- to hmm. no, try, he's just kill. He's just trying to kill them. You know, he's able yeah. to, you know, do like slasher kills where like they're looking for him. But he sees them, but they don't see him. He's yeah. Like, he may be a very intelligent man and you know a, a, a very efficient serial killer. But a serial killer is not, you know, Jason Voorhees or Michael no. Myers, right? Like it's they're monsters, you know. And it's basically it's like he's, he's able to be rain. He's not also a tactical expert, right? He's a psychiatrist. No. He's he's a manipulator. He he plays people against each other. And this movie kind of goes, oh no, we need to see him getting getting the the body count in because you know he's this legendary mass murderer. And we've never seen him kill anyone until the end of Silence of the Lambs where he breaks out of prisons, which is perfect because he has been a tiger in a cage that whole movie and he saw an opportunity and he took it. And that's when you saw the line. This was like, I'm, I'm sorry, the whole notion, the, there's like that bit where Mason Verger is like, Cornell, does that look like a wave goodbye or hello? And it's like, Hannibal Lecter's an intelligent man. He's on the run. He would not purposefully get attention like that. 
Come on. Come on, he is a smart guy. The deed would have been enough. And in the fact that it was actually a very highly populated tourist area, you could see it with tourists on the street and stuff. Yeah. And, and the idea that he would put himself at that kind of risk just seemed completely out of character just to mm. send a statement. Obviously, statement killings are kind of his jam. But, like, but to put himself at such high risk to do it, I mean, no. it, didn't, it didn't seem in character with him. And yeah. the way it seemed out of character, it just, it, he, he's a different Hannibal Lecter this time. And, and um mm. If I imagine a Hannibal Lecter who's been in hiding for 10 years would be very good at hiding. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so th that whole segment in Florence slows, slows the film down to an absolute crawl. Mm -hmm. And, again, I, I haven't read the book, but I have to imagine this comes from a source text. Yeah. Um, so you can't get too far. Maybe you can change the tweak the ending a bit. And, and even then, Ridley mm. Scott apparently had to ask permission mm. of Thomas Harris if he was okay with him changing the ending. And he said, yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is a shitty story at Dylan device. I mean, let's give us the whole thing in Florence. Um, and we should be kind of stupid because the FBI doesn't have jurisdiction there. Um, so that was weird. Um, Mason, uh, Verges, is that his name? Um, yeah. Gary Oldman's character yeah. is kind of an interesting ace in the hole character here. He's kind of a... You know, he's kind of he's doing his own manipulation of, of things, and at one point he manipulates Ray Liotta to put um, Clarice Starling in. Not Crandler, uh, Ray Liotta. <laughs> yeah, he, he manipulates the man, Ray Liotta. <laughs> I couldn't remember his character's name. <laughs> um, I know, I know, no, I'm, I'm Yankee. Was there someone else played Paul Crandler in the first film? Didn't he? Uh, he was a character in yeah, character in Silence of the Lambs, I think, but I don't remember the name. But um, yeah, he's. And it's it's a weird, it's really really weird. Again, going back to so I haven't watched Clarice, which is follow on from it follows on the story for for Clarice's character from Silence of the Lambs. She's she works for Paul Crandler in that series, and it's kind of an antagonistic mentor mentee kind of relationship that they're developing in the show. And it's like okay, they're. I don't know. I don't know where they're getting their source material from, or they're just gone. Yeah, we're literally just going to use that character, and that's it. And we'll we'll create our own thing. I think that's what they're doing because it's it's weird, kind of looking at it. So like, oh, this is an alternate reality version, perhaps where things are, are different. I don't know. Um, um, I didn't it, like any of the the Paul Crandler stuff. It just didn't. It just it felt out of place in his film. It felt like you know these political machinations. Yeah, and back office deals. It felt like something out of the X Files. Like remember, there's always that wheeling and dealing yeah. angle to the guys in the X Files, or yeah, something, something maybe from a a film about you know political machinations or something like that. But yeah. it just it it also felt cliche mm -hmm. uh, in a way that nothing in Silence of the Lambs did. Um, I kind so of wonder if part of that was accidentally intentional because in every single scene where Clarice is being dressed down, she is in a sea of men. She's the only woman. And I'm wondering if it's a bit of that kind of like, oh, we're, we're putting a little bit of social context into this movie, but we're not doing it at all well. And I noticed just, it as well. Yeah. I, I think it, it was a clumsy, clumsy attempt yeah. to replicate the, what they did so perfectly in the first film is that scene where she's in the elevator with all the huge FBI guys, right? Yeah. Yep. And, or the scene where she's, um, she's, uh, at the, uh, the autopsy. At the morgue, yeah. 
and they're like, and she says later, you know, people watch you, see how you behave, matters, you know, yeah. um, and it's really softly spoken and understated. Yeah. That, that's played perfectly. Uh, whereas this is like, she's a woman surrounded by men. Yeah. You know? it's, uh, and like, it's, it's so over. It's, it's clumsy. It's, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it is interesting to see what they were trying to do that in 2001, which, you know, yeah, uh, you'd kind of expect it to be very much in your face today because that's mm -hmm. kind of the fashion for filmmaking now is yeah. to, to, to insert social messages in in a clumsy way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, in 2001, they were doing it as well. Um, mm. so uh, Leota's character it didn't do anything for me. Um, mm. Oldman is good i guess as, as mason verger i i don't yeah i mean the character's probably a fairly dislikable person um it's kind of a makeup is kind of pretty full-on i guess mm -hmm. um well, it's a, a technically an uncredited role for gary Oldman. yeah it was some sort of weird credited thing you read in the, yeah. the trivia you can find a story about whether or not it was because gary Oldman was being a douchebag and demanding equal billing um you know or whether it was something else at play yeah. uh you can make up your own mind on that yeah. one i suppose yeah. i thought it was, it was a strange place to open if the film opened with mason verger negotiating to buy hannibal lecter's um face mask from mm. from barney i'm like is that where you want to open the film though you're opening a film with a character we don't know um i kind of appreciated it because it's it's attempting to set Mason Verger up as the grand architect of evil for the movie, the big bad where Hannibal Lecter is the character is able to, excuse me, be portrayed more as an anti-hero and not an all out villain because no one in 2000, in the early 2000s was willing to go, yeah, we're going to make a villain movie. It was not, it was not at all the, the the trend. It was not the the money maker that it is today. Um, so crazy, they needed crazy to... idea because it didn't really work. Yeah, um, I mean, it's... aside from the fact that, hmm. he, he, I mean, you've got the greatest villain of all time, uh, one of them, and you're going to go and turn him into you know, kind yeah. of a, a a pawn in someone else's chess game. Um, yeah, it, it was in, it was ridiculous. Um, yeah, I thought the um. The violence in this as well. This is pretty gruesome in parts. Yeah. And overtly gory violence, which I was thinking back to mm. Silence of the Lambs for for a film with um again one of the greatest serial killer characters in history. Uh huh. Uh, two. I think of, I think the Tooth Fairy is pretty fucking cool. Um. Yeah. Uh, Buffalo Bill. You mean? Uh. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Buffalo Bill. Um. But it's not a lot of overt violence. There's a little couple it's of gruesome suggested. scenes. There's a couple of gruesome scenes where they pull the, the girl's body out of a river and she can see the the, mm -hmm. the, the diamond cuts in her back. It's pretty gruesome. Um, she pulls the, uh, the, the, the Benjamin Raspell's head in the jar. Yeah. There are a couple of simple and gory-ish, scary jump scare scenes and gross-out scenes, but there's not a lot of anybody stabbing anybody. There's no one no one hanging anybody off a balcony by their bowels or something. Exactly. And, this, or, this is... This is that gratuitous violence and just let's throw all of the gore as we can. And it's the worst for it. If it was suggested, if, if, if they had kind of gone, all right, you know what? We're going to go back to the Florence scene where the, 
the uh, Sardinian guys or whatever they're from come in and they're trying to catch him. If it had just been silence for a moment and maybe that interaction where you see Patsy kind of tied up and he has a call with Clarice, then it's like, ta-ta, hangs up. Then the next thing you see is him just walking away from the scene, people screaming, you just see a body just hanging from the window. Or the shadow, remember the scene of the shadow. Yeah, you've already had more than enough they force feed you this context it's like oh yes your your ancestor was hung from this very window blah 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 blah. so like okay that's what's going to happen to that guy then you didn't need to show it you had preluded it to the extreme and just hannibal lecter walking away comfortably maybe maybe cleaning a knife and just leave it at that so like fuck those people ran in and he walked out okay that's cool um show it and then to right through to the end, the final scene or the final sequence, the dinner scene you you, you frequently mm-hmm. re- referenced earlier, is mm-hmm. one of the more disturbing scenes mm-hmm. I've seen in a mainstream film. Um, yeah. And, you know, that would be fine in the right context of a film where that maybe a saw film. I don't know. Like, yeah. you know, you kind of ex- you go to a saw film, you expect gory violence. Yeah. Um, and you maybe, be, yeah, it's kind of horror porny. So you can yeah. kind of get get that maybe in a Tarantino film. Maybe you could be almost played for laughs. Um, so, yeah. Um, but in this film, it doesn't seem to fit. No. Uh, but it, again, it fits in the back. It fits to a visual film because there's a lot of violence and gory, gruesome killing in this. And, yeah. And, you know, people's throats being cut and blood spurting out everywhere. Uh, mm. I don't know why they put that in there. Like, is it, mm. is it in there because really looked at the script and gone, there's not enough on the page here to make this interesting. I need to put in maybe some maybe. action and violence and blood and gore to, to, to make it a little bit more appealing to people. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. It just, I, I found myself really looking back going, is it Jonathan or is it Ted Demi who directed the original? I've been Ted. Uh, I Ted. Um, and like he had such beautiful restraint mm-hmm. uh, for that I first think- film. I think the subtlety of Silence of the Lambs is the the biggest problem that this movie does not have, uh, or uh, does have, sorry. And that is that everything is so kind of blunderbuss shot at the wall and see what sticks. Like, it's kind of a cool way to introduce Clarice Starling of her being the only person asleep in this swap van for back of anything so like okay she's seen some, some shit she knows how to stay stay on point when that when the moment comes that's cool and in the book they do go into more of the psychological effect that her time interviewing and talking with Hannibal Lecter has affected her and how it has molded her and shaped her but they don't do any of that here they have a throwaway line where he says uh you know she's talking to unnamed intern or something like that um like oh do you ever think about him and she says oh at least 30 seconds of every day it's like okay that's all you're gonna do about the effects of hannibal lecter on someone come on we're seeing these huge character changes like the fact that she starts shouting as like swear me you swear too like she wasn't at all like that in silence of the lambs and time changes people that's understandable but give us a little bit more as to why she's like that where did she get that confidence from is it because of Hannibal Lecter if so then 
give us the little bits of narrative to explain that. Yeah, you're, you're right, and we, we I mean, you could have spent quite a bit of time, an interesting time, on on imagine the PTSD, yeah, uh, of someone who had to endure like um, the final sequence within um, Buffalo Bill's basement. Yeah, that's uh, that's what Clarice the series does to its credit. It very much goes into that and in the formative psychological ramifications of that single couple of weeks in her life and dealing with um Hannibal Lecter and dealing with Buffalo Bill that that was really well done and obviously they're given a lot more time in a series to explore that but they had oodles of time in this movie that they spent on other unnecessary things that they could have done to really flesh out the character of Clarice Starling because she seems very hollow overall I think um so, I mean, it's not unusual, I guess, for mm. a great film to have a deeply unsatisfying sequel. Um, I think this film has been treated very generously as a 6.8 on IMDb. Mm -hmm. It has a 57 on Metacritic. I think both are too high. Um, it's not a woeful, unwatchable mess of a film. Mm. It's just slow. Uh, it's it's um, over, over self-indulgent. Mm -hmm. It's boring it's too violent uh for what it needs to be it's too long for what it needs to be and it takes us and it, it, it squanders its greatest asset mm -hmm. um and it also one of the things it stretches credulity for me um so there was a scene where we actually saw hannibal was part of the 10 most wanted men in the world mm -hmm. on the FBI most wanted list um and yet he's able to fly <laughs> not disguised no disguises you see you see him at the end he's on a plane sharing food with a kid um and he's not wearing a mask he's not wearing sunglasses he's just ah uh, but like, you see the thing is on that 10 most wanted list it's got his picture and it says like it just says two hands so like oh it's clearly not him then um i imagine they might have found the hand at the uh <laughs> at the house and updated the listing on the internet um <laughs> I mean, it's kind of ironic this came out in february 2001 so like mm. we know what happened in 2001 when it came to um aeronautic events mm -hmm. so if this had come out in february 2002 maybe it might have been significantly less believable that like someone who's mm. on the 10 most wanted list mm -hmm. to get on a plane in the united states and yep. fly internationally i mean I assume he has a fake passport or something. I mean, that's an interesting trick. Yeah. Um, but I just found out he did it multiple times because he was in Florence, mm -hmm. and then he was in the States, and then at the end we see him flying somewhere again, you know, escaping the United States on a plane. Like, come on, guys. Like, he's a pretty recognisable dude. And can you imagine, just imagine for a second, the story, if it had been found that he actually had killed a really, really super rich dude, mm -hmm. uh, Mason Verger, uh, at his house, mm. multiple people. He killed multiple people at that house, yep. including an FBI agent and the re a guy rich enough to rent a senator. Mm -hmm. That might have been pretty big news. Uh, yeah. And, like, they might have been going, hmm, well, what's he going to do? He gonna do? Well, yeah, he probably won't try and fly anywhere. No one does that. So, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> of him at the airport. And, like, you know, I, I know maybe I'm just going too deep and maybe in a better film I would have gone, yeah, no worries, whatever. But, mm. like, you need, like, 
it just didn't make sense to me that the most wanted one of the most wanted men in the world would just be able to mm. get on a plane with without any particular efforts to disguise himself. Yeah, given the Aside legacy of the Canada. movie, given the quality of the cast involved, given the the heritage of the director and the writer, things the the problems that we're picking they shouldn't really be problems if people were trying that's that's the thing it's it feels feels like either there were too many egos in the room and nothing got done or they just thought yeah let's kind of cash in and it um apparently uh thomas harris the writer of the hannibal lecture books um he ended up writing a prequel to all of this called hannibal rising because because of some loophole he was going to lose the rights to his own character if he didn't write another book um and they were gonna they wanted to do a prequel uh movie and so he said well look i'll write it at least that'll be done so i'm like okay phew the enthusiasm from this guy to continue his character i think it died halfway through the book of hannibal <laughs> yeah mm. money, you know money, what I mean? money money um apparently if according to the trivia on imdb the screenplay was rewritten 15 times oh, because geez. demi and demi and foster were unhappy with the uh new character months in the end never remained for production so who knows how many times it happened again after they left the production um yeah. uh it's it's it was a disappointing it was a disappointing yeah. film i i was pretty Pre, I, I actually liked it a lot less this time than yeah. um, than than the last one. Yeah, uh, I remember last... it being a bit disappointing when I saw it the the last time, which is probably about fifteen years ago, maybe. Um, but coming back to it now after the success of Hannibal, which I really enjoyed uh, the the TV show as well as the generally good Clarice, this just really feels bad really does the only okay. thing i can say it would have been interesting is that again according to the undb trivia take it for a grain of salt but mm. at one point david fincher was down to direct this now that i might have been interested in seeing that would have been interesting for sure See, i would you making sort of filtering um done to the lambs through seven that, that dark, would have been good that dark gritty terrifying because mm. again it, it has more of the violence or the 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 visual violence because you like seven you do see the 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 kills but you don't see it's it's not blood slicing from someone's throat and things like that it is all purposely designed to tweak the character's tense difficulty up and up and up and up and up to a breaking point where the finale is fantastic and that's you see what we have the consequence of that violence right what's in the box yeah, yeah. Uh, you never see what you never really actually see what's in the box no you know? um but yeah it's um i i'm it would have been interesting to see almost certainly think you wouldn't have been allowed to make the film his way so mm -hmm. maybe it's a good mm -hmm. thing but if you had if you yeah, i think david finch might have been a better choice of really scott but I think um, so. uh, i'm you know he's just been a little bit comfortable the last 30 yeah. years <laughs> <laughs> whoops he has been going for a very long time so it's, i think it's fair that he's kind of gone into active retirement <laughs> maybe maybe he should have gone to tarantino route tarantino's 10 and out um yeah. you know uh but Until yeah, who knows but then we wouldn't get gladiator too so <laughs> <laughs> now the keys are 
in your hands, sir. Where are you taking us? I now? have been preparing for this. There's, there's so many exits from this. You know, mm -hmm. it's uh, such a high-profile cast. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm going to take one of the more obvious routes, but I'm going to take us to a slightly less obvious locale. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are going back to 1986, and okay. we are following Gary Oldman to Sid and Nancy. Ooh, Sid and Nancy. It's been a long time since I've now, seen I that. Now, I have never seen this film before. Um okay. So, but it might be a little bit trickier for you to get out of because there are no uh, massively huge names here. But I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure I have confidence. I have confidence. Here. If nothing else, if we're in a situation of break glass in case of emergency, mm -hmm. and you have Xander Berkeley in this film, mm -hmm. and Xander Berkeley has been in everything. Mm -hmm. He he was also in. Um, Poison Ivy 2 that I had Ooh. to watch as penance for not completing the Shane Murphy task last time. I just was going to say he was also in Barbed Wire if, you are, if you're so inclined. Oh, Jesus. Oh. Um, so this film is a little bit tricky uh, to find. Oh, no, shouldn't know. So Courtney Love is in the film also. So she's been in a couple of really decent, interesting films if you are, if you get stuck. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll find a way out. You'll of find that. a way out, yeah. I have confidence, but um, this is, I, I, I'm liking, I'm really trying to make an effort rather than going, oh, I want to see The Fifth Element again. You know, you can sit here and listen to us jerk off about how great this Fifth Element is, but um, a film that George hasn't seen in a long time and a film I've never seen. Yeah. Um, so I'm very curious to see it. Uh, I It's a little tricky to find in Australia because apparently the people who own the rights of these things don't like money. Uh -huh. um, so uh, I have uh, acquired a copy. Fantastic. In advance, in so which I will, um, I will get you to get you. We talked to, to the producers, you know, when you're as high profile as us. We, we yeah, you know, when you got 3,000 followers, yeah, they send over the, uh, the, uh, the, the print and uh, I'll be screening it in my theater room. Yeah. Um, also known as the living room. Um, but no, I, I'll give you, a, I will make sure you get a copy uh, so you're able to obtain it. Fantastic. Um, Thank you. Uh, that is why he is called the talent, ladies and gentlemen. He knows people. Know people. Um, but also, you know, sometimes you just need to prepare, you know. That is true. That is true. Now then, shall we move on? I want to just do a quick sidestep, if you uh, will, into Clarice, just because I have caught up with um, with the show. It did go on a bit of a hiatus because of COVIDs. Um so I'll just quickly give my updates on it. Um, I'm still actually enjoying it. It is very much a slow burn kind of show. Um, but the fact that, like I teased during the, the Hannibal section, it does go into the effects and ramifications of Clarice's life. And not only does it talk about her time with Buffalo Bill, um, and one of, the, one of the key characters in the series is actually the senator's daughter, who was the last attempted victim of Buffalo Bill, and how that scenario affected her as well. Um, but it does also go into more of the that little bit of tease that we got with um, have the lambs stopped crying, Clarice? That kind of backstory, that the deep childhood trauma that Clarice suffered and how that is all forming and mutating her as an as an fbi agent going forward 
still don't know about the overall story. It's a little bit kind of villain of the week-ish, but there is consistently this peppering of overarching story through it. Maybe not quite enough. We'll see how it culminates at the end of the season. But it's it seems to have an idea of where it wants to go, and it seems to be actually doing quite well for it. So I'm I'm enjoying it. And if you want something that's a slow burn, so like it's not one that you'd want to to smash through and just binge watch. One episode a week, the way that it is being released is absolutely the way to to watch this. Just every now and then, just like uh, 15 minutes of um, psychological profiling, not in the same way as something like Mind Hunters. Um, but it's got a bit more of that kind of attitude and certainly more to the science of the lambs than Hannibal as a movie was, that's for sure. And it's um, it's borrowing a little style-wise from Science of the Lambs, but also from the Brian Fuller Hannibal series. Um, there's a lot more kind of kind of beauty to the violence in in a weird way it is shot the the cinematography of the show is really really quite lovely so um if you want something that's technically very good and technically an interesting narrative story i do recommend it i do but where i struggle with it is i thought the the, the uh, actress who was playing clarice was just not very good and she is kind of weak that and is... I, uh, considering it was such a good role for jodie foster and mm. i love the original film so much and it's like mm. Sorry, can't. I don't know how good. I don't care how good everyone else is in this. Mm. You're not. It kind of. It felt cheap. The acting felt cheap. That's You're right. It's, it's that's shot on. It's shot on location well, and you can. Mm. Unlike something like um, what was that Jupiter show we watched the other week? Uh, oh, Jupiter's Legacy. Yeah. Um, and they look super cheap, nasty. Uh, mm. It doesn't look. It just yeah. But anyway, it, it's interesting mm. if you're a really big fan. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's I, on... I would definitely consider myself a Hannibal Lecter Thomas Harris fan. I've read all the books except for Hannibal Rising because it's I saw the movie first and it's like, oh, no, this is just all kinds of bad. Nope, I'm just going to, like like Indiana Jones, it should have just stopped at three. Um, but, you know, that's, that's just my quick little update on Clarice. Yeah. Um, what do you want to talk about next? Well, I can quickly pivot and talk about, um, well, actually, I think it consider we're about 40 minutes in, maybe a bit mm -hmm. more. Um, it might be time to hear from our, oh, our sponsors. Yes, absolutely. This week's episode is brought to you by UK. UK, but it's, it's from July 1988, is mm -hmm. our sponsor. Uh, for the month of July, all of it. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> uh, how old were you in 1988? 1988 i was five five so yeah. you're probably not you're probably not going to recognize any of the ads but um hopefully we, i'll uh, remember some of the products at least hopefully we'll see and we'll try and remember to share the audio this week yeah anky dokies a quiet drink and then anything goes as Paul Barnes steps out along the South Downs Way with occasional diversions en route, like this small zoo where a family of lively apes give pause for reflection. 
Then we travel north with Pam Rhodes to meet another furry friend in an exhibition devoted to Sooty & Co. with entertainment guaranteed. Another chance to see Anything Goes, Monday at 6.30 on Anglia. did you bury the car? In the sand! I'm... I'm not helping much, am I, Dad? No, but I know a man who can. AA Five Star. Motoring abroad. Mom? We're all you need to know. Yes, it, it could well have sand in the engine, yes. Mrs. Jones knows what's going on in the world, but she never reads a newspaper. So what has she got that other people don't have? Oracle Teletext. It gives you the edge. On Anglia, Wednesday at 5 past 11, a cult encounter with the killers. He's fast, she's faster, and they're speeding headlong into a very special, very dangerous deal. There's something coming up, maybe a spot for a good driver. I'm always interested in a good job. Right there. Mickey, you will tell us everything. Okay, Flash, show me what you can do. Ronald Reagan, the man with the master plan. Dangerous. No, I don't understand. Would $100,000 make you understand? John Cassavetes and Angie Dickinson meets The Killers. A cult encounter Wednesday at 5 past 11 on Anglia. After a weekend in the country, Fran and Jack make a big decision. A prize-winning short film from Australia. Feathers, shortly, over on Channel 4. Australia. 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 <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's it for our sponsors for this week. <laughs> I have a feeling that the uh, Australian um, the Australian commercials are a little bit more uh, fun. Uh, they're, they're so formal, the British ones. Yeah. I do remember Oracle Teletext, though. That was that was something that... High uh, tech, bizzo. Yeah. yeah. I, remember, um, I remember when it was amazing when they started getting games on your TV. I know that they did that in the UK. I heard in the... Yeah. Um, UK, you could actually download games, or you could record games off a radio. That's witchcraft. I don't know what you, that you know is. You know how, like, we used to have cassette tapes? Yeah. And you could get, they would play the code shit over the radio, and you'd record on your cassette tape. That's, you could actually, that's yeah. just witchcraft. Nope. I think it was nope. the UK that did that. Um, <laughs> but I know we had the same thing here. It was called Teletext or Teletype or something, and it was... Yeah, uh, like I guess very, very early internets. Um, but um, so like digital TV guide sort of thing. It's like it'd oh, be like that's... news and stuff like that, news and weather yeah. and stock prices and stuff. And you're like, that's all people will ever want to know, isn't it? Yes. And it was <laughs> always so badly written. Like the, the, the it would be there are just so many spelling mistakes and the particularly names of international places. 
It's like, oh, they didn't do any research on that. That's just someone was given a bit of information to type up. They gave it to the uh, the, uh, the intern. <laughs> um, this is my first summer job. You've probably never used a computer before. Um, <laughs> you learn to type like me on a typewriter. Um, yes, I did learn to type on a typewriter. So do not hold it against me. I'm old. Um, should we move on? Yeah. Um, we I was talking about. Let's talk about the hidden. Yeah, um, so I had a complete flashback fortnight here, and I was actually going to talk mm. about this last week, but it was such a shocker, short chocolate block show. I decided to hold it over, but I did not want to skip this because mm. this is really, really, really good stuff. Mm -hmm. So Hidden was made in 1987. It is a horror sci-fi thriller. Mm -hmm. um, probably the only notable star in here is Kyle MacLachlan. Claudia Christiansen is that uh, Christian is in there. She was I've... Commander Susan Ivanova from Babylon Five. Shut up. <laughs> and she <laughs> played Helga. No, no. And she uh, was Helga, uh -huh. sexy um, sidekick of the big bad guy in Atlantis, the Disney movie that kind of killed them for a while in the two D animation. But anyway, <laughs> um, I had never heard of it before. But um, yes, I noticed that she was in a trivia after this. She, she popped up. To be a bit of a cult star um the i guess the protagonist of the uh, film is a guy called michael can act played by an actor called michael nori okay nary or nori i'm not sure exactly how you pronounce it he Nora. has been in he was in flash dance uh, before okay. this um now he was apparently uh he turned down mm. turned down the role of uh martin riggs in a little film called lethal weapon uh to do this film now of course we all know that you probably never heard of lethal weapon it's an obscure mm -hmm. film that no one's ever seen and started this nobody got the role called mel gibson who never went on to do anything else of interest no. um there was only the one film i think of lethal weapon. Yeah. certainly went three sequels uh, <laughs> and, and, <laughs> um, and and the fact that no one's ever heard of the hidden mm -hmm. um that puts, you, that puts that contact at, at um that decision into context. He plays a character um, called Tom Beck. So the hidden e, um, is by a cop and an FBI agent race for answers after law-abiding people suddenly become violent criminals, which is a very sanitized version of what's actually happening. We mm -hmm. see at the start of a film a guy rob a bank in very violent fashion um, mm -hmm. and then jump into a Ferrari and then lead the police on a pretty epic um, car chase. Okay. Across across LA, I felt like I was watching a car chase in Grand Theft Auto because it's so it felt so it was actually it felt like it. But um, and then they uh, and he gets a, he basically tries to run the cops down. He crashes his car. They 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 shoot him. Um, and he goes to hospital where he's somehow survived being shot by fifty different cops. Um, <laughs> and you sort of thinking, well, this is a really interesting angle. It's a very very violent start to the film, but it's a really mm. exciting start to the film. And a bit of a spoiler here, so if you want to go in knowing absolutely nothing, skip ahead a little bit. But um, this is revealed pretty early in the film. Okay. Um, it's not uh, it, uh, not on YouTube. You you can you can you it. can rent it on YouTube. Okay, sorry. Uh, I yeah, I had to rent it elsewhere uh, because reasons. reasons. <laughs> um, <laughs> rent. Um, <laughs> um, and we find out that basically there is an alien or monster, alien slug thing loose in LA. And it's basically going from, it's a little bit alien-ish in the sense it comes out of this guy's 
who's been shot's mouth because his body is now dying. Okay. And it, and it goes into the body of the guy who's a cancer patient in the bed next to him and he's turns this choice. person who was a – the thing is it doesn't really slow his thing down very much. Like um, okay. it basically can't be killed by conventional weapons. Um, <laughs> it does sort of tend to wear the body out fairly quickly, though, because it, mm. it lives a fast lifestyle. It's a bit rock and roll. Um, <laughs> but he, he, Every he, character he, after the parasite has left them is just played by Keith Richards. Or Tommy Lee. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you see Sebastian Stan's going to play Tommy Lee. Yeah, um, and uh, Lily Cole. Cowles, and I've seen the pictures of her as um, pa Pamela Anderson. Yeah. And, and I'm like, wow, she yeah. really looks like her. Um, uh, I'm interested in that. But anyway, so Tommy Lee is not in this film. Yeah. <laughs> um, but basically it, 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 it occupies these people and turns them into, you know, uh, you know, amoral killers okay. um, with a penchant for committing crimes, doing whatever the fuck it wants and <laughs> driving Ferraris and shit. Um, and uh, Michael Nuri plays a local sort of highly respected detective. He's on the case. He's been hunting down the first guy mm -hmm. who robbed the bank for ages. Um, and he's joined um, shortly after uh, by Kyle McLaughlin, who sort of arrives as the – after – the uh, the uh, the alien occupies a second host. It goes and um, uh, basically beats the shit and kills a record store in it. Record stores, if you're not sure, kids. <laughs> Let me tell you about record stores. Uh, he was he, he was shoplifting cassettes. That was what he was doing. Um, oh, that's a worthy thing. They only and, ever appreciate and value. And he basically kills him because of it. Um, but Kyle McLaughlin is at the scene of his crime. He plays a he, oh, I'm an FBI agent uh, from Seattle, and I've been tracking these guys. Mm. Um, but there's something a little off about Kyle McLaughlin. He's just a funny, look, funny guy. His story doesn't quite seem to add up. And but he, uh, he basically joins up with uh, Michael Nori to try and hunt down this. Uh, well, what we don't know is a creature yet, mm -hmm. um, but to to sort of end its reign of terror across LA and and later in the film to actually. Um, to short circuit some of its pretty nefarious plans. Um, I, I don't want to give too much away about what mm. happens later because I would strongly recommend you find this film. Um, do you ever see a film in the 80s called Alien Nation? Yeah. It was sort of a buddy cop film, but it had aliens yeah. in it. Yeah. Think of yeah. It a little bit more like it's, it's sort of, this is actually predates Alien Nation by a year or two, I think. Okay. Um, but uh, it's. Um, it's got a sort of more vibe, so it has sort of a, a buddy cop angle, um, but with a sci-fi edge. Okay. Um, sci-fi horror edge to it, which is is an interesting sort of combination of genres, and it's done really well. It's really entertaining. It's really fun. It's got that great eighties aesthetic of everyone's got Uzis and shit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, like I said, the, the suits, their hair. It's like. It's got that 80s action film edge. They just can't seem to get right anymore. Um, it's fun and it's violent. Mm. But in we were just complaining about a film being too violent, but this is violent in, in the right way in the sense mm. it fits with yeah. the uh, aesthetic. But some of the effects are really gross, which is kind of, again, kind of what you want from it. It's kind of a trashy movie, you know. Um, it's directed by a guy called Jack Scholler. Who name doesn't ring a bell to me? He has. I was done... just looking at his uh, filmography, and it's sort of like, oh, um, 
He did a Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. And he did a Wishmaster in 1999. Holy um, shit. Wait. Oh, he did Mortal Kombat Conquest. Oh, yeah. Everyone should forget The writer is written by Jim Kauf or Jim Koof. I don't know how you pronounce that. He has done some other. He wrote Rush Hour. He wrote National Treasure. He was a producer on Grimm. Okay. Um, oh, he was a writer on the remake of Taxi. That's bad. That wasn't great. Yeah. Well, he wrote Operation Dumbo Drop, so that always sort of, you know, just there we go. It all out. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, this is a fun movie. I really, really enjoyed this. I, um, if you like a bit of horror, a bit of sci-fi, I, I can't okay. recommend the hidden. Uh, and, and you know, if I could tell you the story about how I discovered this, it's um, somebody posted a picture on a group I'm in on Facebook of a TV guide from Melbourne in like 1989 or something <laughs> like that. And I was like, I don't remember why, what was interesting about it, but they decided it was worth posting. But I was just sort of looking at what was on TV that night. And, you know, The Hidden was on like 11 o'clock at night or something. I'm like, never heard of that one. I'm going to have a look at it. I found it and I'm very <laughs> glad I, very, very glad I watched it because this is a, a hidden treasure. All right. Well, that's good to hear. And, um, you know, I love Carl McLaughlin. I think he's a great actor. So I'm always happy to watch his work. Cool. All right. Where should we go to next? Um, do you want? Well, we're talking science fiction. Yeah, shall um, go to. Do you want to talk Dark about City? Dark City? Yeah, yeah. So Dark City. It's a romantic comedy. Um, no, it's uh, one of the classic. Um, it it came out the year before The Matrix, and. I'm curious, actually, could you, while I'm talking, Travis, could you look up and see when the 13th floor came out? Was that? I think that was 1999. We saw that. We watched that. Yeah, we watched that because there there was like this, like three or four year. 99. 99. So this came out before the 13th floor, which we talked about months ago now on the show. And the Matrix, which we've talked about in the past as well, I believe. This is kind of playing in a similar similar vein as those sorts of things where uh, sort of like reality is not what you think it is. And this is a hyper-stylized kind of um, movie directed by Alex Prias, who um, has had some on and off successes. Like he really got a lot of success for The Crow, the original one. Um, he did this a couple of years later, but he has also done Knowing and Gods of Egypt most recently. So he's, yeah. a, he's a bit of a touch and go guy. He did do iRobot, which wasn't bad, but it wasn't exactly great. Um, but uh, it's got quite a cool cast in it as well. It's got Rufus Sewell, Kiefer Sutherland, Jennifer Connolly, William Hurt, Richard O'Brien, Ian Richardson, Bruce Spence, to name some of the most... Uh, Melissa George in her yeah. film debut. Yeah, yeah. Um, very, 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 very small role, but she's in it. But, uh, yes. Colin was... Friels, who our Australian listeners will know Colin Friels. He was in Water Rats. He's been in everything, Colin Friels. You will absolutely know Colin Friels' face. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But, this was um, filmed. This is filmed in Sydney. Yeah, again, it was. exactly where the Matrix is filmed, but a year before it. Yeah, um, and even so, like stylistically, there's that similarity to it. Like this is, I I kind of this movie is a group 
prototype for me for what if they decided to do like a modern day live action version of Batman the animated series with that kind of like art deco aesthetic kind of what Tim Burton played with a little bit in his Batmans but this is that that time out of place it's like it's very old school um like 50s 60s 70s kind of atmosphere around but it's it doesn't feel like that's the right time frame it feels like that's the time that they set up much like the, the next year the matrix they kind of say oh we set it up as this year this um, this is the most kind of accessible time or the most understandable time for, for people to accept and things like that it's a really cool little um, idea for those who don't know the plot <laughs> of dark city is a man struggles with memories of his past which include a wife he can't remember and a nightmarish world no one else ever seems to wake up from uh, i don't know if that's really true um let's try it uh, written by anonymous john murdoch that's rufus sewell's character awakens alone in a strange hotel to find that he has lost his memory and is wanted for a series of brutal and bizarre murders Whilst trying to piece together his past, he stumbles upon a fiendish underworld controlled by a group of beings known as the Strangers, who possess the ability to put people to sleep and alter the city and its inhabitants. Now Murdoch must find a way to stop them before they take control of his mind and destroy him. I think that's a little bit more of a, a better... It is. It is a fairly intricate plot. Yes, it really, really is. This is not one that you can just have on in the background and just casually jump in and out of the story. I, I would strongly happen. recommend paying attention to it because it's worth it. Absolutely agree. And I think it's looking at the um, scores, 7.6 IMDb and 66 on Metacritic. I think that's really harsh. I think this is actually worth it. It's dated, especially compared to how well the visuals of The Matrix have held up only one year apart this does look more dated the special effects and things like that are not as good but the story is still incredibly solid the performances are still great um Kiefer Sutherland um he was just fantastic as the Dr Daniel Schreiber who's the only other person in this world who knows what's really going on and there's just a great little scene where he's kind of in his laboratory setting up these syringes that the strangers use to to inject new memories into people it's just so great the way he plays it it's just just the right side of mad scientist where he's kind of so kind of like childlike delight about so like putting a little bit of childhood trauma and things like that just dropping these bits into it to make the these great memories this great like holistic memory bank for a new character in the world that he's helping build the the strangers themselves are delightfully that they have been so mined over the years for their the look the way that they deal with everything um i'm particularly thinking about um like there's an episode of buffy the vampire slayer which is all silent and um like the the, the characters are kind of like the whispers and they just kind of float through and just do things it's like okay that's very much like the strangers and the matrix even the the, the council of of the strangers and things like that, it feels very agent-y um it's 
there's a lot of iconic kind of look to this movie. I really, really enjoy it. I would love, love to actually see a TV TV show of this. I absolutely thoroughly disagree because you know, but fuck it up. No, if if they got if they got the right people, I think that there is more than enough um, to to mine for kind of where the strangers came from, how they set things up, and why they are searching for the meaning of the soul. It's a throwaway line, but it's like, oh, okay, that's why they're doing it. They're experimenting to find out this. That's why they created the memories of a serial killer and things like that. They're they're pushing the limits and stuff like that. There's, I think there's enough there. And to be able to have, I, I'm a sucker for those kind of stories where you can have the same actors just playing different roles. And the fact that you can just, so like this week, this person has been injected with the mind of someone who is a flamboyant skydiver. Um, it's, it's one of the things that I really just loved about uh, Quantum Leap. <laughs> you know, it's it just just one of those tools that I enjoy. I I, I'm gonna, gonna I, I hear you, but I disagree <laughs> with you. I <laughs> one thing I hate about everything today in, in entertainment is everything needs a backstory. Nobody asked, nobody wanted a Cruella de Vil film. Fucking no one, but they made it anyway. Now mm-hmm. MGM have a right, as you called it last week, by the way. Um, yeah, thank you. Have a James, wait, now that they're in the rights to James Bond, wait for the Money Penny TV show. Wait for the Blofeld show. Wait for the Scaramanga show. Everything they can do but they can milk out of that cow without actually having to get away with putting another bond in because obviously the broccolis probably won't let them get away with putting... You know what's going to be the first thing? It's going to be young bond. It's going to be young bond. I actually feel like no because I feel like, again, bond, the actual bond might be the the cash cow, the, 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 the sacred cow, but they maybe won't get away with touching it. Where you know they can make a spin. No one asked for a Clarice show, by the way. No matter how good it is, um, <laughs> is you know. Um, so whether or not it's a, it's a junk young James Bond, or whether it's, like I said, a Blofeld show, a Money Penny show, a show about Q, a show about M, they're doing a spin-off. Something oh, they can do, they can actually brand it. The James Bond Chronicles, the stories of Blofeld, or something like. This you know, is the shared uh, James Bond universe. That's fucking what they're going to do. Yeah. And so, I mean, obviously, Dark City is by no means held in the same esteem as something like Bond or um, 101 Dalmatians or um, <laughs> anything of that nature. It's it's an obscure little uh, science fiction film from the 90s that I absolutely agree with you is a brilliant film. Mm. Um, and absolutely, if you haven't seen it, I'm 100% on board with my yeah. co-host here. You should yeah. absolutely see it. It's on um, Netflix. But I don't want it. It's perfect the way it is. It should not be touched. And I don't need a backstory to the strangers. I don't need a backstory to what they're doing. I just let's because they'll ruin it. I don't need I, to know everything. I, I, while I say I would love it, I don't need it. That, that is that I absolutely agree with you, Travis. I, you know, this movie tells just enough just enough rhyme and reason for every single character that it gets through and it tells the story and it doesn't stick around i mean it's it's an hour and 40 minutes this is 
Well, I mean, my, one of my main complaints with cinema today is that people yeah. like Snyder and Nolan and people, and I, well, we're going to write soapbox about them again, but they spend far too much time, they're far too indulgent, where if this film gets in, does a thing, and gets out. And it's yeah. such a shame that Proyas never went on to do anything because he had his two opening films of The Crow and Dark City is two films, uh, I think yeah. maybe not his first two but, uh, feature films, I think they might be, but close to it anyway. Um, that's a hell of a way to start. And yeah. then you're right. Oh, Robot was pretty good. And that was his fourth. Yeah. But then <sighs> since since then, he's it, it seems like he's not found any source material that's particularly gelled with him because like Dark City, The Crow is so perfectly timed. It is a slice of this universe where it's like, okay, yeah, there is occasionally um a crow will bring back to to avenge that's all we need to explain it cool done dusted he is an avenging angel avenging angel going around killing all these bad guys in a hyper stylized world cool and then when you consider what was going on with superhero films at that point in time this is um a couple years before batman and robin yeah um then that is a comic book character um so yeah he 100 got that right um Mm. Uh, and he did, and he, so he, he backs it up with Dark City. It's proof it's not a fluke. Yeah. Um. That it's yeah. You're, you're, I mean, like I didn't hate Gods of Egypt as much as everybody else did. Like I thought it was, it wasn't the most tragic film I've ever seen. Like yeah. I would take it, I would take it over something like Army of the Dead. I absolutely would. I'd agree um, with that. Yeah. But uh, it's still, it's not good. It's, it's really, it, really not good. It is entirely devoid of character. Whereas this dark city and the crow have ooze character ooze story in both of these movies you just look at them and you go oh there is so much potential for more because that is good narrative storytelling where they are giving enough that you kind of go okay that's cool i want to know more but i know enough to keep the story going that's the balance that you play and he does it very very well very well whereas gods of egypt it's vapid it's not bad but it's just there's there's nothing interesting oh, going on it's pretty bad but i mean it's only a whitewashing a lot of egyptian people probably wasn't <laughs> a good move either um, yeah but uh but then yeah but the guy can write he can direct his film mm-hmm. even survived the influence of david s goya so you know um <laughs> That that in itself is, is is advertisement for his abilities as a filmmaker, but he doesn't seem to be doing a lot anymore. His last few things have been short films, and yeah. um, Gods of Egypt was five years ago, and yeah. uh, I don't imagine producers are, are backing up trucks full of money um, to to do stuff after that. Um, yeah, but, but maybe he's got enough money now. I don't know. Yeah, um, he's the director for hire now. Maybe I don't know, maybe he should go back to music videos. Do they still make music videos? Yeah, um, they do. <laughs> um, should we, should we, it's a good, really? it's a good call. Um, yeah, yeah let, let's move on. Pivot to something else uh, completely uh, different. Um, yeah. So I had a bit of a flashback weekend this weekend. Mm-hmm. You don't mind? I'll, I'll, I'll do them back to back so we can go boom and, and flash them back because I have yeah. absolutely nothing uh, in common. <laughs> uh, um, I don't know what you're talking about. They are, um, they are part of the shared cinematic universe known as Hollywood. Um, <laughs> you actually asked me. So the first film I, I watched, um, or one of the films I watched this weekend, was Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Mm. 
This is the first time I've seen this film. Um, really? I never, I never saw this film when it came out because it just didn't look like it was for me. Um, and uh, so this is from 2005, and you actually said which one is it? Because there were a few films called Mr. and Mrs. Smith, mm. but um, this one, of course, is famous for starring uh, Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie. Were they maybe together at the time? I can't really remember. This my... was the movie that, uh, depending on timelines and who you talk to, was the one that broke up Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston, and he got with Angelina Jolie. There was a lot of hubbub around it. So very um gossipy sort of uh, celebrity gossip but of course they were super super hot at the time yeah um brad still is angelina not so much um well, she's gonna be in the eternals angelina not so much um <laughs> uh fire hydrant um on isle travis <laughs> She's going to be in their first flop. Um, not the same, but she, she's actually. Have you seen any of the films she's directed? She's a decent director. Um, decent. She's not, you know, Frank Capra or anything. But um, anyway, Mrs. and Mrs. Smith, <laughs> 2005, a bored married couple is surprised to learn that they are both assassins hired by competing agencies to kill each other. Pretty straightforward. Dire yeah. uh, directed by uh, Doug Lyman. Probably mm -hmm. best known for his work doing the Bourne films, uh, Shaky Cam, Mr. Uh, Shaky Cam. Um, you did two, didn't he? No, it was Paul Greengrass who did Bourne Supremacy, Bourne Ultimatum, and then Jason Bourne, the, the fourth one of the Bourne, the true Bourne saga. And then there was another one that had Jeremy Renner in it, which was the Bourne Legacy. Um, Doug Lyman did um, Bourne Identity. He did Jumper. Um, uh, yeah, you're and, right, you are. Um, Edge of Tomorrow, which is... Edge of Tomorrow, good. yeah. Just, geez, that's a fucking good film. Yes, uh, Oh, and he did Chaos Walking. Um, yeah. um, he's it a, is, bit of a, a bit of a director for hire, but he's overall a pretty solid, solid. director. It's written by Simon Kingberg, who is uh, now a director. Started out as a writer. He wrote... Um, he yeah. wrote uh, X-Men Last Stand. He wrote this. He wrote Jumper. You mentioned Sherlock Holmes. Days he, of Future Past, Fantastic Four. He is, he is the true definition of failing upwards. He did, because then he directed um, he directed uh, Apocalypse, Dark Phoenix, Dark I think. Phoenix, yeah. uh, yep. The last of the Fox um, uh, X-Men films. Mm -hmm. uh, your last X-Men film for a little while, it looks like, for now. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but, hey, look, I mean, look, the... the, the some of those are okay. Sherlock Holmes is all right as a film. Yeah. Um, you know, um, and the, some of the Days of Future Past is a good film. So isn't that everything? But I mean, he wrote Fantastic Four. The fact he was ever hired again for anything. Um, yeah, but I guess that means that Josh Trank kind of kind of got the, uh, the blame potentially. Yeah, yeah. But, um, so this is um, – so I was in, I was in, I was had this film suggested to me by, uh, by Summer. Okay. who, who uh, said that they felt my characterization of it, I kind of thought this film was going to be a big, dumb, stupid action movie. Um, and mm -hmm. their feeling was that that's not what this is, and this is actually a metaphor. This film is about marriage and relationships. Okay. Which, to a degree, I believe it is. I mean, there are certainly yeah. early on, and there are occasional directorial flourishes from Doug Lyman, mm -hmm. um, where just in a way shots are, shots are framed especially with shots uh, between, you know, um, Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt, where he has things separating, be other sides of a of a room, or there'll be something separating him the whole time, especially early on. Mm. 
we meet them as they, they've been married for a little while. We see them early on in their sort of, you know, the, the honeymoon phase of a relationship. And then we see them as, you know, bored, detached individuals from each other uh, later on as we set yeah. up into, you know, the idea of them being being, being um, assassins. Um, and, and that's done reasonably well. Mm. Um, you, you can sort of see what the director's going for there. Um, yeah. But I would contend... The film does turn into a big, dumb, stupid action film in yeah. the third act. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, so, I mean, the, the plot basically is it all. We see them going off doing their job as, as hitmen, assassins, what do you want to call it, hit people, uh, assassins. Uh, and mm-hmm. then at one point in time, they both end up accepting a job to assassinate the same person. Um, mm-hmm. And they basically get each other's way and basically cost each other the the kill if you will uh, the, the, the target gets contract. away yep uh, contract gets away and then there's a, a fairly nice little sequence where they both you know like he knows that she knows that he knows and she yep. knows that he knows that she knows but they're not saying it um and then it kind of explodes into the stuff you saw in the trailers i remember seeing the trailers yep. going really um yep. and then basically i mean you don't really get it like you're getting guns i got guns hidden over the house because it's like a james bondy kind of house with like hidden drawers and they're like shooting at each other and i'm like but you never really feel like they're actually trying to kill each other um yeah and maybe this is further to the idea of it being a metaphor for marriage in a sense that you are throwing barbs at your partner in this case you're shooting your partner but you're you know literally shooting them you're shooting them with words and actions and that kind of thing if you were to take it down that path and you know while you might say horrible things to your partner um you know, or your wife or husband or whatever, mm. um, you're not necessarily trying to kill them. You're just trying to hurt them and, you know. Um, yeah. And maybe I'm giving this, this script and, and film too much uh, credit for, for trying to speak <laughs> in metaphors, but I guess that kind of, for me, that wasn't very exciting because mm. the stars of a film, right, they're, they're not going to yeah. kill each other. You're not going to kill Brad Pitt halfway through. This film is not that interesting. Um <laughs> Uh, you know, you're not you're not that brave. This is a studio film, and your big stars are going to be there at the end. Uh, we all know how it's going to end before it ends. You know, mm-hmm. well, at the start, you know how it's going to end. Yeah. Um. But so I don't know. Maybe some people were thrilled by by scenes of them like blowing the house up, and you know, in a sense, not literally, but like blowing giant holes in the house and shooting shotguns. And the fight scene, the fight scenes were well choreographed. It was nice that um. It was interesting that we we observed while watching it that um that Angelina Jolie is very much the aggressor in the fights and yep. that um Brad Pitt is constantly on the defensive and that this was maybe a conscious choice by the director to go look I don't want to look like you know it's a bad look to have yeah. Brad Pitt beating the shit out of you know Angelina Jolie on film which is probably yeah. you know he's a lot bigger I would imagine I don't know than physically so maybe he would I don't know um but yeah that was uh, and then in the beginning of the third act where they actually team up and yeah and have to take their play but now is a massive contract out all the all the assassins are out to kill them um yeah. and the finale takes place in a um bunnings type store like a, i don't know home depot i guess if yeah, you're an american yeah um where it's like outdoor sets and i guess I think again that was a conscious choice, and maybe it was doing it for laughs. That this is somewhere where, as a couple, you might normally find you know younger couples sort of wandering around a place like that, and you know, oh, this would look great in the living room. Yeah, like an IKEA. Yeah. 
It's like yeah. an Ikea meets a Bunnings, I think, is supposed to be what it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was something, sort of a, a couple kind of thing, except that they're in this, you know, store trying to fight off, you know, waves of assassins. Yeah. And, again, I was thinking way too hard about this, going, uh, apparently there are no cops in this city. Nope. Because no, man, these guys can blow, have a gunfight in their house for 20 minutes and no one <laughs> cops turn up. Um, yep. And then, like, you know, you're going to have a game, you're going to have a massive shootout. You have machine guns and shit uh, in, in, a, in an Ikea, essentially. Um, and, there's again, no police just, mm. you know, turn up. And I'm like, I, I kind of needed a little bit of an explanation about why that was. So I feel mm. like I'm sticking the boots into it a little hard here. It was distracting. It was fine, if you like that kind of thing. Action comedy, uh, I, I, it, it was pretty, pretty much by the numbers for me. And uh, uh, I've never been a massive fan of. I mean, I like Angelina's some of work. I mean, I really like Girl Interrupted, um, yep. but most of her studio stuff when she's not really pushing the envelope very mm. hard. I, I don't know. It was, it was, it was fine. I, guess. I like the concept of Mr. and Mrs. Smith, you know, the idea of just that comedy of errors kind of thing where two rival assassins, unbeknownst to to each other, fall in love and have a family or, or, or have a relationship. I like that as as a as a setup. Um I don't know if a movie a big budget, big star movie is the right vehicle if they want to actively try and use it as a metaphor for marriage and relationships. I think it kind of gets bogged down too much with, well, everyone loves Brad. Everyone loves Angelina. We can't kill either one of them off. We need to make this lighthearted and fun. It's like, okay, but I thought you were making a metaphor about relationships and marriage and things like that. And aren't messages usually supposed to be poignant in some point? Um, and it takes a very, very deft hand to make a poignant comedy. And Doug Lehman is not that. This movie is not that. So it's like, okay. And it maybe that's what people didn't want to see. I don't know. I think it was yeah. fairly successful, if I'm not mistaken. So Yeah, I think so. Um, I recall it being fairly successful. And people, yeah. Um, even yeah, it's a worldwide gross of four hundred eighty-seven million dollars on a hundred and ten million dollar budget. Generally speaking, I think those numbers would tell you it's a a, a reasonable a reasonable success. Yeah. Um, it was it was fine. Yeah. It was fine. It didn't do much for me. Um, yeah. but you know, it's just not really a kind of film that I would not a film made for for me. Um, I would it's like not to a curmudgeon. I feel like imagine, no, I guess I just, it depends. I don't know, to put my finger on it. It was just, just so bland. That's fair. And white. And it was, I think it was, it was a very white film, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's, 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 it's the, um, this is the mayonnaise of I don't know comedies. what you're talking about. Keith David is in it. Uh, his voice is in it, I think. I don't know if he actually, I don't know if he's uh, actually ever on screen. He's uh, just I, I, goes by the name Father. I didn't notice him in it anyway, but um, yeah. this is the film for people who find garlic aioli too spicy, you know. Um. <laughs> hey, and and there, there's an actor called Miguel in it, so, you know. Oh, it's diversity. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, think, you think the audience gets confused about me complaining about, you know, uh, you know, clumsy, woke films trying to, you know, 
cramming their social messaging in an artless manner at the same time as complaining that this film is for people who find mayonnaise spicy. Uh, <laughs> Got to keep them on their toes. Um, while we're talking about films that white people like, um, I'm going. I'm going to segue to uh, a very another very white film, and that is The Breakfast Club from 1985, which I watched on Saturday night as well. Yeah, um, a again, legitimate classic. A legitimate classic and a film I had never seen. Wow. I am, I must admit, I'm fairly poorly educated in the oeuvre of uh, John Hughes. I mean, I've seen Home Alone and Trains, Planes <laughs> and Automobiles, but I think that might, oh, and Weird Science. I'm pretty sure I saw Weird Science You've back then. you seen Uncle Buck? Oh, I have seen Uncle Buck. Yes, there you um, go. His eighties stuff, his eighties high school movies. You know, Sixteen Candles. Uh, I've seen yeah. Ferris Bueller, but I haven't seen Sixteen Candles. I haven't seen this. What was the other one? Molly, Molly Ringwald was in. I can't remember. But um, oh uh, uh, shit, what was that? Um, I can't remember. But uh, okay. this, certainly this and Sixteen Candles, which I know are some of his more famous films. Yeah. Um, I I had not seen before, so I've seen. You probably have seen more stuff than I. I thought I had, but um, <laughs> I, I just, maybe recently, those are his first two films, 16 Candles and The Breakfast Club. So yeah. um, they were, I guess, the ones that he's often very famous for it. I never saw, especially for the Brat Pack films. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, so that, 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 those were the movies that kind of um, uh, took up the moniker of Brat Pack movies. Um, if I, if you're like me and you've never seen The Breakfast Club, you've probably heard about it endlessly. Um, five high school students um, meet in Saturday morning detention, discover that they have a lot more in common than they thought, which is, again, like most of these things, a very brief overview of a film. Um, we And that really dates it. I don't know if it's the same, same in, the, in the US still, but the idea of teachers coming in for detention on the weekend, I don't see any English teacher ever going, yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> I was wondering about that because I don't believe, I, I never had detention. But oh, um, goody two shoes. Uh, I don't believe there was ever such a thing in Australia as Saturday detention. Yeah. And again, like you, I was sort of thinking, most of the teachers I knew were not the kind of people who like to come in on Saturdays and the kind of teachers you and I know are not the kind of people who come in on Saturdays. <laughs> um, and I don't know if I would trust a teacher that would willingly go, yeah, okay, I want to come in on Saturday and hang out with the kids. Yeah, like most of the teachers no. you and I know would come in and like be like hungover or something and be like have a cold <laughs> compress on their head and be like, just fucking shut up and give me a barocca. <laughs> um Anyway, maybe it's an American thing. I don't know. If you're an American and you're watching the show, apparently there are 3,000 subscribers now. So if you're yeah. one of them and you know, but do they still do Saturday detention in the United States? Did they yeah. ever do Saturday detention in the States or was it just in the movies? Um, tell us, get back in touch with us and tell us we're wrong or, or let us know. We we don't know. But that was certainly uh, a, 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 a cultural fun, um, you know, quirk that I didn't quite get. But... I know what supposedly happened. We yeah. have um, Saturday, uh, we have Emilio Estevez in this film, starring as Andrew mm -hmm. Clark. We have Anthony Michael Hall as Brian. Um, we have the great Judd Nelson as John Bender, Molly Ringwald as Claire, and Ali Sheedy plays Allison. Um, we only have a real person, people in these films who have sort of lines of note. We have Paul Gleason playing Richard Vernon, who is the principal, I think, who's, who's supervising the mm tension -hmm. um, on that day. And John Kapalos plays Carl, the uh, janitor, 
who how crazy is this? They had Rick Moranis lined up to do that role. Rick Moranis had signed on to play the janitor and they didn't like what he was going to do with it, so they fucked him off and got this guy in. Oh, my goodness. John, John, I mean, sorry, Rick fucking Moranis, like, and they said no to him. They said we don't like it. We'll get some. John Cashmore. In case anyone anyone who is um, new to the show doesn't doesn't know, I think Rick Moranis sits up there in in a very rare little bubble um, upper echelon of actors that we just love, like Sam Rockwell. You know, there there are certain actors up there that we just love, and Rick Moranis is one Doesn't of them. Everyone loved Luke Moranis. Like he quit acting to go look after his wife. I mean, yeah. And you look at what he his work in the eighties is it's eighties and nineties, Spaceballs and Ghostbusters and Honey I Shrunk the Kids. And, the kids yeah. But I mean, and they, these films just get funnier if they get older, especially those Spaceballs. You know what a funny yeah. movie that is. All these years later, merchandising, merchandising. <laughs> Uh, I'll, um, I'll talk was, a little bit about Spaceballs later. Not supposed to be an instruction manual. Um, <laughs> but we have, we have these kids, we have a, a very antagonistic relationship between most of them, and that they mm. don't know each other, they're friends. We have Emilio Estevez, who's the sporto, the wrestler. We have Brian, who's the nerd. Uh, we have John, who's the bad boy. Claire is the cute, sort of preppy uh, girl, popular girl. And Allison's kind of the. The weirdo goth chick, if not really gothy, but maybe eighties gothy. Um, and initially, John is kind of the um, the antagonist in the group. He's he's stirring up uh, uh, Andrew and Claire and trying to get a rise out of him. At the same time, he's really pissing off the um, uh, uh, principal Richard Vernon um, and just being a complete cunt. Um, Apparently, they, he stayed in character off offset as well, bullying bullying the actors and stuff as well to try and just be the character. Nearly got fired for it as well. Apparently, I've, I've heard that. Um, you want to look at somebody who time hasn't been kind to? Look at what Judd Nelson looks like now compared to what he looked like in 1985. Um, that is, he has is a face that has been ridden hard and put away wet. Um, <laughs> He is. It's not. It's not a good face anymore. Like he is. A, oh, what a descriptor. Um, he's still working though. He's still working. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but um, as the day sort of goes on, we these conflicts, I guess, start to really draw things out in people, and we start to learn about why they're there. And each of them, through in different times in the film, we learn about why they're in detention. Um, from that, we start to learn about their backgrounds, their lives, why they are the way they are. Why is John such an asshole? What is it about his home life that puts him there? And we learn, I think I can spoil parts of a 40-year-old film, uh, <laughs> 36-year-old film. Um, and, you know, he is basically abused at home by his, by his father. And he basically, there's a scene where he goes toe-to-toe with the principal going, uh, you know, he's like, oh, you want another detention because you got one more? And he's basically, basically egging on the principal to keep giving him as many detentions as he as he can. Yeah. Uh, but basically, he, he he's doing that in a way because he'd rather be in detention at school than be at home with an yeah. abusive dad. Um, and what a wonderful little story this is from um, John, who's who wrote and directed this. Yeah. In, in a couple of days, apparently. Um, that that's a that's a. An angle like you think about the 80s, right? High school movies were a staple of the 80s. Bullies 
in high school movies are a staple of 80s films. Um, but to so elegantly and, and give a, a bully a humanity and depth mm-hmm. and, and make them a, an empathetic character in a way, no one was doing that. No one was doing that. I don't think they're doing that now. No. Um, it's very so easy to just go, he's an asshole. We want to see him go, you know, arrested or custard pied or the girl <laughs> dump him or whatever it is, you know, the, yes. the, the, the nerves to be in the ski contest and save the community center. Like, I mean, <laughs> whatever, right? Um, you at that, it, he doesn't, John Hughes does not stoop to that level. No. He's, he's, these are human characters, these are characters with, you know, 360 degrees, you know, they have emotions, they have stories, they have, you know, um, personalities. It's, uh, and he does it all beautifully and gracefully in an hour and 37 minutes, Zack Snyder. Um, you know, uh, you had another hour on top of this and you didn't create one character and that's a zombie film, but, you know, <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, and he really gets some wonderful performances out of his actors. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone just sort of really uh, occupies their character really well. There are a few parts of this where you're like, oh, that's not okay anymore. Yeah. Really not okay. Like, there's a scene where he basically upskirts Molly Ringwald's character. No, well, yeah, Molly Ringwald's character is upskirted yeah. by the camera. Yep. Um, that is actually Molly Ringwald's underwear. Yep. Um, and she was like 16. Yeah. At the time. So <laughs> you're like, okay, you know, we'll put that shot in the film. That's probably not too bad because it is from the perspective of, of J- John Bender, who is looking up her skirt and that's kind of dick movie might and I'm not necessarily opposed to showing somebody being a dick like that to women because yeah. we could then be a com- starting off point for like why wow, that's a fucked up thing to do yeah um the film doesn't do that no. but also the fact that they, there are many ways you could achieve that shot without actually mm-hmm. doing that to a teenage girl so that was uh no, awkward there is a, a section where john bennett's character is taken out of a library from where he's with the other students and put in a room by himself where basically the principal threatens to beat the shit out of him. Um, and uh, fra- uh, dares him to punch him in the face. Um, you're like, that's not okay. Um, yeah. yeah. So it does show up as a, when there's scenes where they're all smoking weed in the library. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It was a bit, it was a bit out there for me, but I'm like, well, it doesn't seem like something would really happen. Um, yeah. But fair enough, it's the 80s. I wasn't there. It's the weekend. <laughs> but I, I enjoyed this film. I can I, I feel like I would have uh enjoyed this more if I saw this when I was a teenager. I can very easily see why people are like, oh, I'm a Claire, I'm an Allison, you know. Yeah. Uh I associated with a Brian or I was a I wanted to be a John. The the person who suggested this film to, uh, for me to watch, who also the same person suggested Mr. Mr. Smith. Um, uh, may or may not have had a childhood crush on Judd Nelson's character. Um, this is how we discovered what he looked like because I looked him up on Cameo and you can get a shout out from Judd Nelson on the Cameo. And you're like, oof. If, if, I reckon if you got a Cameo from him and you didn't know it was Judd Nelson, you wouldn't know. Um, <laughs> uh, you have to you have to be announcing, hi, I'm Judd Nelson. You may recognize from me from such teen films as... <laughs> um, I think yeah. that something like Breakfast Club is when, when you watch it, um, you do kind of understand 
why it was quite an influential movie to a writer such as Kevin Smith and particularly what people were saying when Clerks and his particularly his early movies came out where people go, wow, he actually writes how people talk. There's there's that kind of familiarity with the characters, with all of the characters in Breakfast Club that people of that age going to the movies and seeing them being quite honestly, I mean, caricatured to a certain degree, but quite honestly put on screen. That's, that's a, that's a, a fairly novel, novel idea that doesn't, doesn't happen all the time. It's usually these hyper realized, hyper accentuated characters that are just mild kind of, Oh yeah. I'm like, no one goes in and sort of, Oh yeah. I'm such a black Panther or I'm such a Captain America or things like that. It's like, okay, yeah, th there's not really. That's a wonderful that point, actually. Like you, you're right. Like our, I mean, you might, while Marvel films are so ubiquitous now, we have a whole generation of kids like mm -hmm. who've grown up on these films. Like, you know, Marvel films have existed their whole lives if you're a teenager. Yeah. Um, and you're right. Like these aren't, we aren't making stories, at least in the cinema, we aren't making stories mm -hmm. about them. Yeah. Um, and I mean, M, because like I'm an old bastard, it doesn't matter anymore. But like, you know, as a, as a, <laughs> a different as a generation. As a teenager, right? You, you in the 80s could go to a movie and see a movie about people like you. Mm -hmm. As a teenager, for me, I mean, well, if you're an American at least, you know, um, American Pie came out when I was in my early 20s, right? Mm. You know, so for maybe kids a bit younger than me, you could go and see a film like that. Yeah. Um, which is a different kind of more like a, in the in the Porky's tradition than yeah yeah than in the Breakfast Club tradition, but nevertheless a yeah. story about teens like us, mm. you know, kid people. You don't they very rarely do not make films about people like us. So as teenagers as you as a kid, and yeah. you can't go to the cinema and see a film and go, I'm a yeah, you're right. Like I'm a Claire, I'm a I'm a Brian. You're not gonna yeah. you're not gonna say I'm a I'm a Loki from sunlight. <laughs> <laughs> Some, yeah, but I mean, just just finishing off that point, there was a lot of discussion and conversation, um, particularly when Blank Panther came out, because it was um, such a uh, prominent representation of a black character, a black hero character in cinema, and it was great to hear, you know, those stories. It's like it's so good to be able to see that, and there was a little bit of that when uh, Captain Marvel came out, but it's like okay you should it should be a better movie if you're going to be trying to to kind of raise that flag with it i think wonder woman might have been a better flag to kind of lift that with just just on a film critique level but um it's it's becoming more and more of a rare thing where it is actually relatable even if it is an outlandish scenario the characters being relatable seems to be a rare thing it's 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 gone it's gone the wayside the teen movie's gone by the wayside yeah kind of the high school movie is kind of gone by the wayside maybe, maybe it's because there are tv shows being made on netflix that do this for you yeah. young people i don't know yeah um maybe. uh again they're probably not going to appeal to me but mm. i think i absolutely would agree that this is a timeless timeless mm. classic mm. and the fact that i still enjoyed it Mm. Um and and kind of just kind of yeah you do you like these people they're wonderful characters, um and mm. you know that's that's that part of my life is so far behind me now so uh, I think it goes to show what a what a quality film it was and what a great writer and director uh, John Hughes was yeah.
absolutely it's a test it's it's always it's usually a good measure of the success of a movie when it is lampooned and homaged so much like don't you forget about me is the whole scene when you're walking away of a yeah it's in the air and... fucking iconic um and any time that song comes on i instantly think of breakfast club it's i think i will now i think yeah. i will now yeah yeah um apparently that was improv so okay cool um it's yeah it's I, I enjoyed it very much so um that was my 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 uh weekend delving into <laughs> the dark past of uh old movies because they ain't making many good ones anymore in, in new films anymore at least um not, they're, not, they're a rare commodity not until black widow comes out anyway yeah. Yeah. well now um speaking of movies that have been uh lampooned lambasted and uh, uh copied a lot um, I decided to watch the 1980s cult classic Battle from Beyond the Stars, which, boiling it right down, I don't even need to look at IMDb for this, is Battle from Beyond the Stars is Seven Samurai in Space. And um, it is visually think like the early Star Trek movies, the really early Star Trek movies, crossed with a bit of Flash Gordon movie, um, and you're in the right kind of thematic ideology. And with all of that, you get a lot of the stereoty stereotypes coming through. Um, not a single black or Asian or even remotely european looking person they are all very white very 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 western and um they oh god it's so ridiculously sexist it's 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 beyond a joke like there are two women characters in it one of them is kind of the science nerd um but she only really has like three key elements. Um, so to to sum it up, for those who don't know the story of Seven Samurai, um, Battle from Beyond the Stars, there is the, I will need to look up the names of them because yeah, I'm not going to. Well, we, um, we got Richard Thomas playing Shad. Yes. We have the great Robert Vaughan playing Gelt. Robert Vaughan, yep. for those who don't recognize the name, you look at his face, you've been in, all sorts of different things. My personal favorite as Ross Webster in Superman three. Oh um, my God. <laughs> he's also in Towering Inferno, which is a classic movie yep, from the seventies. Yep. Uh, George Papad is a George Papadis cowboy. He was a again, you're gonna go, who's that? Um just watch the A team. Breakfast at Tiffany's the A team, yep. how the West was one mm -hmm. very, very famous actor of his day. Sybil yeah. Danning was another name in there. It was kind of big in her day. Sort of, they're like a lot of washed up um, <laughs> people who were desperate for a gig um, without mm. actually being anyone super famous. I always took this to be a sort of a, a Star Wars knockoff. It was, it, it does reek of that um, sort of like trying to quickly ride on the coattails of the success of Star Wars because Star Wars had come out the year before um or was it 78 or 79 for, for the original star wars 77 wasn't it 77 yeah um and so there was there was a slew of them you can just you can just google imdb and 
Google IMDb, uh, Google sci-fi late 70s, early 80s, and there's just so much of it. It's ridiculous. Uh, this has a little bit more merit to it because it is retelling a classic story. Um, well, I mean, Star Wars was telling that story as well, right? I mean, we all know that George Lucas was very heavily influenced. When we a couple of years ago, when we watched um, the Seven Samurai, we we noted that how yeah, what a massive influence it was on on Star Wars. Mm. And, you know, Lucas never decided disguise his his love of um, Kurosawa. Yeah, but this is far more obvious about it's. It is a just a retelling of Star Wars, kind of like how. Um, you know, you get like the modern days, so like, oh, we're going to redo a Shakespeare movie, but with vampires and werewolves and things like that. It's like, mm, try being a little bit more unique with it, but never mind. Um, Shad, you. a young farmer, assembles a band of diverse mercenaries in outer space to defend his peaceful planet from the evil tyrant Sador and his armada of aggressors. Among the mercenaries are Space Cowboy, a space-going truck driver from Earth, Gelt, a wealthy but um, experienced assassin looking for a place to hide, and Saint, Saint Exim, a Valkyrie warrior looking to prove herself in battle. That is it. And this movie, it's an hour and 44 minutes. It kind of should have been longer, the 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 way that they were telling it but at the same time it's like oh god you're really not doing anything at the same time <laughs> um but it's a lot of really early days space battles um ac action like it's they film the space battles in the same way that they would film an old school aerial kind of um British jets versus German fighters, the, the RAF versus the Luftwaffe, uh, and those quick kind of vroom moments where you never really see them get to chase each other or anything like because they were it was all model work. And the model work is actually pretty good. Although the the ship that Shad uses with the computer, uh, the sentient computer called Nell, it from the front, the, the whole ship kind of looks like a a weird snail. But when it's coming from the front, it just looks like a weird depiction of the fallopian tubes going into a womb. It's, I don't know if that's intentional. I kind of hope not. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's, it's kind of tragically bad. It's not a good movie. It's not a good movie. Um, I feel like the idea of it could, is ripe for remake because remaking something that is a beloved movie of seven samurai and putting a modern day spin on it is popular it's it's kind of guaranteed minimum budget sort of thing I mean, it was it was done again recently with the first season of the uh, mandalorian they yeah. did an episode that was basically a remake of um yeah seven samurai so if you liked it, I mean, it was only in a half hour episode, so it's not quite what you're talking about here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it was directed, at least uncredited, by Roger Corman, the great Roger Corman. Yep, yep, yep. If you are not Did familiar you... with Roger Corman, he's like the, the low budget schlock film king, famous yeah. for never making a flop because he makes films for nothing. Yep. <laughs> and actually being a guy who actually launched, and he's still alive, by the way, yep. he's 95, but he's still alive. 
mm-hmm. he has launched a number of careers. Mm-hmm. Um, among those he mentored are Francis Ford Coppola, yep. Ron Howard, Martin Scorsese, Jack Nicholson, James Cameron, Robert De Niro, Peter Bogdanovich, Joe Dante, and Sandra Bullock. So, so one or two names you might know. Two names, uh, you might have heard of one or two of those guys. So, I mean, he makes Drek. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, a lot of guys, you get your stars somewhere, right? Yeah. Um, he recognizes and, talent. And, you know, he's, when they wanted to make, I forget which one it was. I think it was the Fantastic Four movie back in the 90s when they wanted to. Yeah. If you're not familiar, occasionally if a studio buys a rights something, George hinted it is before with some of her rights with um, Thomas Harris and his novel. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to make a film based on that novel within a certain time period, mm-hmm. or else the rights revert back to the original owner, and they get to keep the money, and yep. they can sell the rights to somebody else. Yep. So the Fox um, had the rights to Fantastic Four in the nineties. I don't forget exactly which year it was. It was in the early nineties, like eighties, and uh, he uh, they needed to make a film in a certain and actually you know have it come out within a certain period of time, or else mm-hmm. the rights would be gone. They didn't want to make a film mm-hmm. um at that point in time so uh they got roger corman in gave him a half a million bucks or something and said make us a film and he made this god awful fantastic for me which i think you can watch on youtube now it's on youtube yep um and you know it did it in like two months and it came out and so obviously they you know it was they, enough to qualify for the break so, i mean they played it at like one cinema for a week or something it's like oh well, yeah. we made a film we released it and no one went and saw it it's not our fault um, yeah you know you never said it had to be a good film um <laughs> and the event was 1994 it was um and it's it's that's the kind of guy he was he made it for nothing and he's the guy can come in and do that um yeah. famous yeah. for that that kind of thing and um, quite often you'll find he's in a situation a bit like this where he, he's not actually credited as the director of a film. Yeah. But he might have been brought in to fix it, get it just, across the line. Just work it, yeah. One thing that um, is kind of uh, interesting when you re-watch this movie, though, is music is by James Horner, who is famous. An Academy um, Award winner. Academy Award winner, famous for working with uh, Jim Cameron. And... The music that he puts, there's a lot of it in this movie. My God, it's kind of, it feels almost constant that there's some musical score. But it's like, fuck, James Horner was amazing at what he did because even the schlock that you're watching and it's so, it's like B-movie or B-grade TV movie quality acting in many of many of the the shots and the the direction of it and the pacing of it it's all over the place but the music just gives it this air of grandiose space opera that you kind of go all right i'm just gonna keep watching because something's gonna happen <laughs> so he was a fucking amazing composer and it's it's a shame that he's he's passed on but my god what a legacy of work that he had continued even his the stuff that he did for crap mu- crap movies I'm curious to check it out because it's like I I want to I want to hear what bad James Horner sounds like because so far I haven't heard it. <laughs> it's interesting to sort of follow on from a a film like this, just names that mm. you know you come across. Bill Paxson worked as a carpenter on the set because he was mates with James Cameron. <laughs> interesting. Um, and apparently James Cameron and future Galen Hurd met on this production. You don't know Galen oh. Hurd is his um, yeah. his production partner. 
who they made a little film together called the Terminator um, four years after this. So um, what a uh, what an interesting what an interesting set that would have been. Yeah. Yeah. James Cameron was on set making models as well. Yeah, it's and it it makes a lot of sense hearing that because like like the opening of this movie. Okay, it is so familiar to anyone because it is the big ship coming towards the screen and going and it keeps on going and the mini just keeps going and the detail of the mini is revealed and it just keeps going and then and then eventually depending on what movie you get to at the back it says we break for no one <laughs> <laughs> and it is an iconic mini in space movement star wars did it so much this does it star trek has done it um and of course space balls has done it and there's so much about space balls in this movie that they they clearly kind of almost did like what airplane did to um what, what was the, the the movie that they they ripped off? oh zero I hour i think it was zero cool. hour yes and there's so much of it that kind of go, oh fuck yeah this is wow Wow, they did such a good job. Oh, my God. <laughs> He's talking about James Horner. I know I talked about him in the podcast not so long ago. I forgot he was the composer on the film Kroll. Yeah. Um, um, and he also did um, Streets of Fire, which was uh, the, the film that kicked my off our, God, our chamber. The film that kicked it all off. Wow. <laughs> and now if that isn't something to end chain movie on, I don't know what is. <laughs> But no, that's that's all I have to really say on Battle Beyond that's, the Stars. What an, interesting, what an interesting film to talk about. Yeah, but it was just such a such a fascinating time to the 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 hands that the fingers that were in this pie, and it's like ah, oh, if if this, then maybe that, and it it could have could have if it would had more more care and attention done, it could have spawned something quite amazing. Well, Last Friday, I was supposed to go and see a film called Life Force at a comedy film screening, okay. um, which is, again, in that sort of genre. It was 1981 Life Force, and that was about space vampires or something. Um, <laughs> but, again, I think all in the wake of the uh, – yeah, 85, sorry. So all in the wake of the, the space trend at Star Wars. Mm. That one was kicked. That one was directed by one Tobe Hooper. Oh, interesting. Goodness me. But it's, apparently it's awful. So that's been rescheduled for July because reasons. Uh, the unspecified <laughs> virus of unknown origin, of course. Yes. Um, yeah. um, you know, walking around Melbourne and stealing people's shoelaces. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, but should we have, have you got anything else this week, or are we? Are we? Are we no. Let's. Should we? Should we? Should we end it there? I think. I think we're giving people some time to get some blood running back into their butts, and uh, yeah, uh, you know, the, the people at home uh, who are listening on the podcast. Thank you if you've made it this far. It's yeah, quite a remarkable effort. Yeah, um, but uh, just to give a rundown of the show, episode one fifteen, we talked about Hannibal from two thousand one. Um, Travis picked Sid and Nancy going following the Gary Oldman link there for our next week's chain movie. I touched on Clarice, um, the Stan TV show that is continuing on slow weekly pace. Uh, we went on to our British sponsors from what year was it, Travis? Ah, 88. 1988. Okay. Uh, then Travis talked about um, his Wayback Machine, <laughs> The Hidden, 
Um, I talked about Dark City. Then we talked about Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Breakfast Club, and finishing up with Battle Beyond the Stars. Um, I think next week we may be able to talk about the first episode of Loki. The night I think it's supposed to come out. Um, so that's Wednesday out their time. So I think it'll be Thursday Ooh. our time. Oh, so we'll wait a couple of weeks. Yeah, unless they unless they drop it earlier, something like that. But I maybe, don't like our chance. But um, yeah, that has been our show, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining us, as Travis said. Um, please remember to go over to twitch.tv slash the fried brain. Make sure you give us a little subscribe there um, and follow us. Um, you can go to youtube.com slash armchair producers, facebook.com slash George Tarrant, facebook.com slash uh, Friday Productions, all of that stuff. Travis is Evil Trav on Twitter. I am the Fried Brain. Can you sense a theme with my connections there? Um, branding matters. It. Branding matters. And, you know, I'm just telling everyone what's inside my head. It's, it's only fair. A vague disclaimer is no one's friend. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, ladies and Thank you for listening to Armchair Producers. We are a weekly podcast every Wednesday at 8pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. We appreciate your support. Thank you for listening to our podcast. And if you'd like to follow along live, please go to twitch.tv slash thefriedbrain, where you can actually also donate to us, as well as watching us live on youtube.com slash friedbrainproductions or facebook.com slash friedbrainproductions. Thank you and see you next time. Bye-bye.